Luke chapter 6, page uh, 1600, if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. Luke 6, verses 12 through 19, Jesus choosing of the 12 apostles. This is God's word, it is our authority, let us give our attention to its reading. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, in the songs that best capture the blessings of freedom of the American experience, oftentimes uh, the words of these songs embody a vastness that sounds like our land goes on forever. Spacious skies, amber waves of grain, purple mountain, majesties above the fruited plains. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, may God bless America. I cannot be absolutely certain, but I tend to think that the, the ones who wrote these songs got this kind of all-encompassing vastness from the Old Testament prophets, who often so beautifully cast the vision of God's kingdom as something which stretches from sea to sea and encapsulates everything in between. Indeed, our country has enjoyed a huge amount of God's common grace poured out upon us since its founding and the freedoms that many people have enjoyed. Although it's been a temptation for people not just in America, but in various places of the world at various times, we must be careful not to equate any kingdom on this earth with the kingdom that Jesus set up during his life. We've been seeing as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is bringing a heavenly jubilee, true salvation to earth in his ministry. This passage reminded me of some of those old patriotic songs because there is a mountain, a plain, and the coastlands, or it comes to us in our, in our translation as a flat place. A mountain, a plain, and the coastlands. And these uh, three places in our passage signify important theological points. The mountain onto which Jesus goes teaches us that only Jesus can approach God in the way that he does. And what he is doing on the mountain in this passage is he is showing us that he's becoming the new covenant leader of the people of God, covenant representative. 
The flat place to which he goes down, is the, is, uh, that shows us that only Jesus can bring God's blessings to the people. He goes from the top of the mountain down onto a flat place to signify that only he can bring the blessings of God to earth. And the coastlands of Tyre and Sidon remind us that Jesus came to bring everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believe in him, back up the mountain of salvation. He came so that God's blessings might flow from the mountains to the prairies and to the oceans. Luke begins this passage by saying, one of these days... It's not necessarily the next day. We see sometimes that Luke arranges the account of Jesus' life around theological themes and isn't necessarily concerned to be uh, purely chronological. But the places are of uh, great interest in this passage. And on this particular day, some particular day, Jesus goes onto a mountain. Mountains are extremely important places in Scripture. They are connected with the special presence of God. And we see that this is where God chooses to communicate oftentimes with the people who are uh, the leaders of Israel. For instance, we see this in the book of Exodus. Moses is the one who consistently goes up onto the mountain to commune with God and then to bring that message to the people of Israel. Mountains are holy places. Mountains, of course, like Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, where uh, Moses was first called to be the leader of Israel. God called him to go and to set his people free. Mount Moriah, where Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, and then God spared him. Or even Mount Ararat, where where Noah worshipped God after the flood, and he offered a pleasing sacrifice to God. The heroes of the faith in the Old Testament that were able to speak with God on top of a mountain that had this special privilege, we will see that they were not bringing the ultimate things that Jesus brings. All of these heroes, Moses and Abraham and Noah, they're pointing us forward to Jesus. They're pointing us forward to him. So Jesus is up on this mountain, but it's not just to bring us this this covenantal point. There's also a personal and a spiritual flavor with what he does. It says that he prays. He prays. And Luke emphasizes this in verse 12 because he uses a verb, a participle, and a noun all deriving from the same word for prayer in this first verse, verse 12. Jesus went up in order to pray. He prayed all night. And what he prayed was prayer to God. Luke is emphasizing all of these things to show us that Jesus was praying. It shows us the intimacy, once again, between Jesus and the Father. And also, if we think about why Jesus was doing this, or what he was about to do, he was spending the night in prayer because he is about to take an important step in his accomplishing of redemption, his choosing of the twelve apostles. So before this big event in the life of Jesus, he spends the night praying to God. We saw how obvious it was in Jesus' wilderness temptation that it was prayer that was upholding him as he staved off temptations from the devil. If we go forward in Luke's gospel to chapter 22, we see that just before Jesus is going to be betrayed and crucified, he goes up on the Mount of Olives, again, once again on a mountain in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays. And he prays to God to give him courage. He also asks him uh, that if it were possible that the cup of suffering would pass from him. 
But remember what he says to his disciples just before he goes up on the mountain to pray. He says, stay here and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives to pray. He comes back and what are his disciples doing? They're sleeping. So isn't it interesting then that Jesus was persistent in his prayer. He did not fall into temptation and the disciples fall asleep And right after Jesus was betrayed, they do fall into temptation. They walk away. They deny Jesus. They say that they have nothing to do with him. They abandon their Lord in his hour of trial. And thus, this is one of the themes that that Luke is uh, consistently harping on to show us the faithfulness of Jesus, that he consistently was one who prayed, and then also to show us that there is this counterexample that if we are like, oftentimes, the disciples were, in not being persistent in prayer, we could fall into temptation. There are at least 17 references in the Gospels to Jesus praying, and we have at least six explicit prayers that are recorded. Some are long by Jesus, and some are short. The shortest one comes to us in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name. And this is in John's account of the Last Supper. And it is, a, it is as if Jesus is saying, Father, use my life to glorify thy name. Right before he goes to the cross... Jesus says, use my life to glorify thy name. What an encouragement for us. We don't need to be experts in prayer. We can use simple words and simple requests that show our love of God, our love of the Father, our commitment to him. And we can say things very simply like, Father, use my life to glorify thy name. Use prayers like that to show our willingness and our desire to live out the call to see the glory of God in our lives. That's not the main reason why Luke gives us this passage. Again, it was this step in God's unfolding of redemption, what Jesus is doing here on this mountain. He chooses the twelve. He chooses the twelve. Earlier I mentioned that uh, in the Old Testament it was Moses who was one of the clearest examples of men who would go up onto the mountain and then receive uh, revelation from God. And what he received were the words of the covenant, the words of the covenant. And it was the words of the covenant that helped to create and constitute Israel as a people. In Exodus chapter 19, it says this, God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's revealing his word to Moses was was that I am creating a people for myself. I have brought you out of Egypt and now I will make you my own. So then, therefore, keep my covenant. Notice how the Lord calls Israel the house of Jacob. Jacob, of course, a central character in the book of Genesis. And when Israel is called the people or the house of Jacob, it's signifying that they are not just one big group of people, but they are a big group of people who are made up of 12 smaller tribes. The 12 sons of Jacob were these 
historical leaders of the nation that were considered the fount from which Israel became a great nation. It's the house of Jacob. And the, the point of retracing this this morning, I mentioned that this morning because as Jesus ascends the mountain, he is undergoing this similar covenantal process as what Moses underwent in Exodus 19. He is becoming this new covenant leader of the people of God, and he is, in a sense, creating a new people. And this is why Jesus chooses 12 men to be leaders from his disciples. Just as there were 12 tribes of Israel, so Jesus, as the leader of this new Israel, picks 12 to be apostles. It's important that we notice that word, apostles. Notice that uh, he chooses from the disciples, 12 to be apostles. And so sometimes we equate those words, apostles and disciples, but they really have distinct meanings. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. We got that kind of a, a square and a rectangle thing going on. And Luke, has, uh, Luke is the one who uses this word apostles more than any of the other gospel writers. Why is that? He does it because he is the one who will go on to write the book of Acts. And the office of apostle is so important to the founding and the establishing of the church. So Jesus picks 12 from his disciples to be apostles, to be the foundation of this new Israel. Of course, when I say new Israel, I do not mean that Jesus comes along and and scraps everything that came before him. It's not as if God is saying, yeah, that Old Testament thing didn't really work out. And so the people of God have failed and now I just need to start over. I need to push the reset button. That's not what Jesus is all about. Jesus coming to earth is not a picture of God stopping and restarting. It's a picture of promise and fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment. We are told in Romans 11 that New covenant believers are grafted onto the tree of promise, the tree of promise that began in Abraham and even stretches as far back as Genesis 3. It is why when we read about the eternal bliss that God's people will experience in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, we read this connection between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Listen to this. This is Revelation 21, speaking of the holy city, new Jerusalem. It says, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And the wall of the holy city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. He is not a reset button. The Old Testament or the Old Covenant with Moses brings our attention to two things. It brings our attention to our need for our sins to be forgiven. And we we see that we need a faithful and obedient one who would come and measure up to all of God's righteousness. And so this new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating in his life, to which he is taking a decisive step in this passage, going up onto a mountain, speaking and communing with God, choosing 12 to be his apostles, that is pointing us in the Old Testament to what Jesus is doing here in this passage this morning. Here's a snippet from a Christian uh, fiction novel 
that is written as to be taking place during this time of Jesus' life. And this is what the narrator says just after Jesus chooses the twelve apostles. So I have come to see him as the new Jacob, God's favorite and beloved, the bearer of all of his promises, the father of a new people. This is why Peter will say later on in the New Testament, he will say, But you, speaking to the church, Jews and Gentiles, listen to the echoes of Exodus 19. But you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This covenant that Jesus is inaugurating in his life and in his ministry, which will be finalized when it is forged in the blood of the cross, this will be a ministry of mercy, of accepting the grace that God extends to us, of being reconciled to him. So then who are these founders that Jesus chooses? Who are these apostles? We think of the founding fathers of our nation, and we know all of their stories, very famous men. And so we would think then that uh, the team that Jesus picks would be a team of all-stars. Men like, in the Old Testament, uh, Joab and Abishai, the mighty men of David, who could uh, kill 100 men each on their own. But this list is not really an impressive list at all. And we don't get the backstories of the lives that these men have lived. But this reminds us, this list of apostles, I want to focus on this for a few minutes. It encourages us even today as the church remains in the world as a testament to God's saving grace. That's what this list of apostles is. It is a testament to God's saving grace. And since the church emerges from these apostles, it's an encouragement to us to rest in God's saving grace. First, we see that this group is sort of a motley crew that is called to embrace suffering. Called to embrace suffering. I try not to watch uh, the NFL draft anymore because I think it's become really one of the absolute worst things of the entire calendar year. And so I don't enjoy it at all. Uh, And Michelle and I were trying to take care of the baby on Thursday night, and the baby was kind of being fussy, couldn't really get it to calm down, and so... I realized that we were going to be uh, sitting down there in the basement for a while. So I flip on the TV, and uh, the TV happened to be on, uh, on ESPN. Uh, I think that's Michelle's favorite channel, ESPN. <laughs> ESPN stands for Every Sport is Political Now. Okay. Um, so we turn it on, and the NFL draft was on. We saw just a couple minutes of it. And the first pick that we saw, it was uh, this man who seems like a a fine young man, and after he was drafted, uh, the analysts started talking about all of these things that were part of his personal life, things that stretched back for for years, and uh, my dear sweet wife said, why in the world do they know this, and why are they talking about this? And I said that it's because just about every single thing that has happened in someone's life now is part of an evaluation to be drafted into a professional sports league. I read somewhere this week that there are about 60,000 man hours put into scouting each first round NFL draft pick. 60,000. And here is Jesus. 
who has all of the advanced scouting that he would need, the perfect ability to pick an all-star starting lineup, and he looks out to all of his disciples. He knows the scouting report on all of them. And so who does he choose? A list that is not impressive at all. The only name that we easily recognize is Peter, and that's perhaps more for his failures than his successes. Unlike the 12 fathers of the tribes of Israel, we don't get the full backstory on these men. But these would be the men, along with the Apostle Paul, who would go out into the world and become the emissaries of Christ and preach the message of forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus wanted those who were weak. Even those who were strong at one time, men like Matthew, the tax collector, we looked, looked at his story a couple weeks ago, they left that life behind in order to follow Jesus. Jesus wanted those who were weak. This is because the way of life for those who are citizens of God's city is the way of suffering. The book of Hebrews calls us to go out into the world and to bear the reproach of our Savior outside the camp. The idea in our world of status is so huge. We can go on to various forms of social media and we can post our status. We have so many people who are obsessed with status and view it through the lens of money and power and influence through the endless pursuit of the sovereign and independent self. And yet in Christ, we have a very unique status symbol, don't we? It's the cross. It's a status symbol of suffering, of weakness, and of failure in the eyes of the world. But we remind ourselves, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And we see it even from the beginnings of the apostles that he chooses to build his church. God, Jesus, wanted what was weak. What do we learn from this? We learn or are reminded that it is only God, only the power of God that can build the church. Only God builds the church. The calling upon us is to embrace this new status symbol of suffering for the glory of God, for the sake of our Savior, bearing the reproach that He has already borne for us. And to be faithful to his word, to be faithful to the gospel, to attend to our life and our doctrine and our piety, to be faithful to him and let God build the church. It is a status of suffering. Another thing we learn from this list of apostles is that the church has a transcendent unity. Look with me at verse 15. The first name there in verse 15 is Matthew. I mentioned him just a couple minutes ago. We saw his story a few weeks ago. He was a tax collector in cahoots with Rome. He was despised by most people in Israel because tax collectors were seen to have this connection to the Roman Empire. But they were especially despised by a group called the Zealots who were very much anti-Roman occupation. So then look with me at the last name in that same verse, verse 15. Simon, the Zealot. See, Matthew, tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, were apostles together. This is the supreme example of having a libertarian and a monarchist together, a lover of freedom and a lover of the king. But it was the true king, the king of all creation, Jesus, who had brought them together. 
Matthew and Simon the Zealot surely would not have wanted to be in the same group unless Christ had called them. But that is what he did. And that is what he has been doing since he has ascended, calling people from all walks of life, sometimes opposing walks of life to create a new people with a transcendent unity. What's the supreme example in our country? Republicans and Democrats, right? Both, imagine, both can be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. White Sox fans, people from Cleveland, I mean, the list goes on and on. Christ can save anyone. His grace is sufficient to save all. And Jesus creates this transcendent unity, and out of it he forms a community. Transcendent unity gives way to community. Well, Matthew and Simon the Zealots sat at the dinner table together. You don't think that they caught each other's eye and thought, only by the grace of God could this have happened. Only by the grace of Jesus. And the same must hold true for us. The grace of God must humble us. It must cause our love for one another to grow. It must cause our heart for the lost to grow. To be like Simon the Zealot and look at Matthew the tax collector and see someone that formerly you maybe would have despised. But by the grace of God, you love that person. A transcendent unity. We close this morning by considering what we talked about at the beginning. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans. When one came down from the mountain, having been Uh, Having received a message from God, there would be two things. There would be teaching or a speaking of the law. And we'll see that next week as Jesus gives his famous sermon. And is speaking the law of his kingdom. But then also signs and wonders. And we see the signs and wonders here right as he comes down off of the mountain. What we should notice is both the power and the generosity of Jesus. He has the power to heal everyone. And then he has the generosity to keep healing. He is powerful enough to heal everyone of every kind of disease and to cast out every evil spirit. He is both powerful and he is generous. And indeed, he is generous towards everyone because Luke tells us that there are people from Judea, people from Jerusalem, and also this very interesting reference to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile cities. So we can assume here in this passage that there are Gentiles who have come to be healed and to receive the blessings of Jesus. And thus Jesus is the one who can ascend the mountain to be with his heavenly father. And he is the one who can come down to this flat place to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the coastlands of the Gentiles. This is what Christ was sent to do. This is why he is the fulfillment, to be the blessing of God's grace that extends to everyone. But it's not just a matter of descent. It's not as if Jesus just comes down to heal these people temporarily of their sicknesses. No, he has come down off of the mountain to make it possible for us to one day ascend the mountain of God's salvation with him. In Exodus 19, we remember as Moses came down the mountain, it was a mountain of great fury. 
And people were very afraid. And and God said, if anyone even touches this mountain other than Moses, that person needs to be put to death because they are approaching God in a way that they should not. The writer of Hebrews reflects on this. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 12. For Israel could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But then listen now to what Christ does. He brings us up Mount Zion, the mountain of salvation. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus came down to offer forgiveness of sins so that the fear that gripped Israel at Mount Sinai would be washed away. Jesus has come to turn our sorrow into joy. He has come to turn our weeping into laughter. He came down from the mountain to make his blessings of grace and forgiveness and mercy flow from sea to sea. And he came all the way down from heaven so that he might make us share in the eternal bliss that God himself has had from all eternity, from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans. His grace flows so that we might ascend the hill of the Lord in Christ's righteousness and be with God forevermore. Let's pray. You are a God beyond all praising. Father, we would bring that which would please you if we knew what it was. And so we can do nothing else but rest in Christ and say that we seek to honor you with our lives. Father, use our life to glorify thy name. Empower us by your spirit to walk in obedience and faithfulness and gratitude to you. Thank you for Christ who went up the mountain to come down to make his blessings flow so that he might call his own to himself and bring us to be with you forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen.